Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. This is episode 13. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. How are you guys doing today? Doing pretty good. Just hanging out, playing with my watch. <laughs> my Apple Watch. So, I think after... We recorded the episode with Charles. The next day, my watch did show up, finally. And so I've had it for about a week now. Do you have a fully formed opinion, or are you still kind of figuring out how you how you think it's going to work? So I haven't ever been a watch guy. Uh, like, I stopped wearing watches probably about 15 years ago. And mm-hmm. so the, the the whole idea of me buying the watch period was... I was just kind of leaving it up to fate with a developer lottery. And so I've been forcing myself to wear it. <laughs> I take it off when I'm when I'm typing at my desk because it's not as much. I can't stand the, the feeling of that band underneath my wrist. Hmm. Um, it's just a blue band. But I, like the edge of it keeps bumping on the, the desk. And I feel like that I'm getting these phantom taps on my wrist, so I keep trying to look at it, and there's still there's nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I've moved from phantom vibrations in my pocket to the phantom taps on my wrist now. So are you glad you got it still, or? I actually am enjoying it. I do like the fitness part of it. It's made me get up and move a little bit more. Have either of you installed apps yet? I've done a little bit with third-party apps. Um, not a big fan of them. Some of them are decent, but they're just slow. Yeah, they are pretty slow. Um, I mean, I have a bunch installed. I don't know if I actually use many of them. I would say the... Uh, I, I've been using Overcast. He's already come out with his second uh, app. <laughs> <laughs> So when when it launched, he had the app that he had you know made beforehand, and he's like, "Oh man, this is garbage." Marco Marco did, and then he went and completely did something new, changed the whole hierarchy of the app and stuff, and it works a little better. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I kind of felt after playing around with the watch that it it's definitely a different experience than I thought it would be, and I think having that physical watch informed how I would approach designing an app where before it was just kind of guesswork. Yeah. I avoided playing with WatchKit just because I didn't want to mess with remote views at all. I'm still kind of waiting for June to roll around and see what comes out there. But like certain apps, they're pretty decent. Like I like, I like the Siri recognition in the, in the watch a lot. That works really well. It's actually gotten a lot better on the phone, but there hasn't been a big event that like made people aware of it. Like I've just been noticing the past couple months on the phone, even it's like, oh, it responds really quickly and all that stuff. And I think there were some enhancements in iOS eight, but even since then, like it's gotten a lot better since the iPhone four S or whatever. And people don't always realize it. I don't think. Have you made a phone call from your watch yet? Uh, you know, I tried making a phone call thinking that if I initiated the phone call on the watch, that the Bluetooth headset in the car would pick it up, but that didn't happen. I was still trying to go through the watch. So I 
canceled that call. That was the only call I ever made. Huh, that's interesting because my my wife got direct, directions from Apple Maps with her watch, well, with her phone, and then she was annoyed because when she was driving around, it was giving her the directions on the watch, which is like a whole bunch of taps to tell you which way to go. Yeah, I, I tried that out. That I tried that out. Just, I usually use the Google Maps because I want to get to where I'm going, but. I did try it with the Apple Maps, and I I did find the the tapping interesting. I think it would be really good for walking directions, which I I think is probably the primary use case. Yeah, it's been good overall. I'm pleased with it. the The feel of it, it's not too bad. I still see it out of the corner of my eye and think, "What the heck is that on my wrist?" But I'm sure that'll eventually fade away. Now, I do know a guy that he got the Milanese loop, but he also has a, a bit of eczema, and he's going to be returning the, the loop because it's irritating his skin too much. It's unfortunate. Yeah. So, Sam, let me ask you this. Do you have uh, it returned to your watch when you raise your watch, or do you have it returned to the last used app? I left it by default to the... Okay. The watch face. I found that it's really useful to to do the last used app. Um, just just because one, it's really easy to get back to the watch. You can kind of hit the crown to go to the home screen, and then hit the crown again to go to the center of the home screen, which is where the watch app is. And then you just scroll in. So mm-hmm. if I want to get to the watch easily, I can. But then if you're doing activity or anything like that, I mean. Like you can hold it up and see what your heart rate is, or or whatever app you're using. It makes it actually kind of useful as an app rather than, oh, I just want to get in and do this quick thing. Yeah, well, certain Apple apps do that automatically. Mm-hmm. So the activity one, the the one where you're doing the workout stuff, that yeah. actually will always come back to it right away. So you don't have to have that setting turned on for that one. Well, like. The uh, yeah, I use it for other apps too. Yeah, I could see if I'm in a grocery store and I've got my little shopping list on my wrist, then yeah, wanting it to come back to that, opening up the app each time would not be much fun. Yeah, so you're waiting till June to see if you're gonna be writing watch watch apps natively. Um, but are you gonna be writing Windows Phone apps soon, Sam? <laughs> You know, I briefly considered that today, just for this uh, the little app I do for the Cincinnati Blues Festival. I thought maybe it would be some effortless porting and I could pick up 4% more users. Oh, man. <laughs> well, that's what Windows Market Share is. For any, for any of the, the listeners who aren't familiar with what we're talking about, Microsoft had their developer conference uh, this last week, and they announced a tool called Visual Studio Code. Uh, which is essentially kind of like a Atom from GitHub. Yeah, it's uh, based on the Atom stuff, stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, they bundled a bunch of other open source plugins, and they they basically let you, you know, write your Objective-C or your Java or whatever, and then I, I guess some of the stuff that's going to come out later will let you compile that to uh, Windows app whether that's windows phone or windows for pc which may be more useful depending on whatever the app is 
and they actually said they've implemented a bunch of uh, frameworks like UIKit, uh, Foundation, and all that stuff. So it's not like one of the, some of these other tool tool chains we've heard of where people are like, oh yeah, you can do Objective-C, uh, but you don't have NSArray or something like that. Yeah, I was... Uh... I thought it was funny because, you know, all this time the wine guys from the from the Linux crowd have always been trying to reimplement the Windows API on Linux and now uh Microsoft is forced to implement the Android and iOS APIs on their phones. Yeah, things have definitely taken a, a bit of a turn. Mhm. They're definitely a different company though. They're they're changing their tune quite a bit. The the new CEO is a lot different than Yeah, even the Microsoft from a couple years ago, it seems like they would have been too, I don't know, like proud to even consider something like this. But now, like enough other people realize, you know what? We're not getting anywhere with, with this Windows Phone thing. It doesn't matter what we do. So we might as well, you know, do what we can to try to get some, some popular software on here for people to just have a good experience using it. Yeah. And, you know, when Windows Phone first came out, the the eight versions, Microsoft was approaching a lot of businesses saying, "Hey, we'll even port your app to your our platform for free." And a lot of companies did take them up on that, but they never maintained them. So these apps are just dying a slow death on their app store. Yeah. So it's probably a good thing to you know, embrace other people's stuff. Blackberries been able to hold on a little bit by running Android. Yeah. Still, I was uh, at work. I was trolling the Android developers, saying that they would be Windows Phone developers. It makes the it makes the most sense. I mean, those phones have back buttons. We don't. So that doesn't surprise me that it was you who was telling them that, Sam. <laughs> oh, it was it was getting underneath their skins pretty badly for some I of them. I can't imagine who that would be. So what about what about you, Alex? Are you gonna crank out the the windows apps with visual studio code or do you never see yourself touching it i don't really see that coming up very often uh, <laughs> you know we we get requests to build apps all the time and you know usually it's android or ios one or the other or both rare if ever do we get clients asking for windows it's just such a small market share that it's hard to justify now, I suppose this reduces the amount of work to get to that platform, but until the numbers start growing, that to Sam's point, you still have to maintain it with another app store you've got to watch and, and get screenshots together for marketing materials, things like that. So I, th- I think it would be hard to justify. I suppose if you're a popular game or music platform and you have the, a large team with the means to easily port to those platforms, then maybe it makes sense. Like, let's say Spotify wanting to take on the Beats music service. I could see them wanting to be on as many platforms as possible. Yeah. As long as it's making right. them money. Now, if those 4% of your user base aren't paying, then it's not going to help you that much. Yeah, I, th- I think it's rare for me to encounter a Windows phone in the wild, short of the Microsoft folks that I run into. Yeah, I mean I could if I ever use this it would be more likely to to have this available on like Windows desktops or something like, you know, we have a game, 
there's lots of people with Android apps or Android phones. So we're on Android. There's lots of people with iOS. So we're mostly we're on iOS, but there's lots of people with PCs too. Uh, a lot of old people uh, who are you know a big part of our audience. So that may be uh, one way to do it. Although I think there's probably other easier ways, maybe to get an Android app onto Windows. So we'll we'll see what happens there. Yeah, I I will say the. New Surface Pro seems to be getting good reviews. Uh, I don't know how many people have bought them, but it seems to be a solid product. I, it's been a while since I've touched Windows, so I really don't know what the experience is like. I'm I'm sure it's better, but um, Microsoft's starting to, like Sam said, is starting to kind of turn things around and approach things a little smarter than just irrational responses to the market demand. Yeah, they've they've had to. They've become less and less relevant these days. I mean, they're still relevant in the in a business standpoint, but home consumers they're shifting away from PCs and droves. So and that's where their bread and butter was. So you guys, uh, this past week we had some app store kerfluffle, I guess you could call it. Did you guys hear about the the guy who wrote Redacted and? how he hit the number eight spot in the Mac app store and only ended up with $300. Yeah. That doesn't really surprise me that much. Uh, you know, we had our apps in the Mac app store at one point too. Actually, they're still there. Uh, we just haven't been updating them cause it hasn't been worth it. So they're kind of dying like in the windows app store you were talking about before. Um, but yeah, there is not much money to be made on the Mac app store, especially just going by those, those charts. And it seems like this conversation comes up, you know, every couple of months when someone's like, I've got this great idea, I made this app. Uh, oh, not many people want it. I can't really make a living off of this. Uh, I give up. Yeah, we had the Jared Sinclair and his big flame out with the, that RSS reader last year, yeah. I guess it was. And, and now this one. And to be fair, I mean, this app looked cool, but... I don't know that I need it. I, I'm proficient enough in my little paint editor. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> well, and there's. It did some nice things with the blurring. Yeah, I guess, there's other the apps that do the same thing for free stuff. too. Yeah, and I, I think the the main point is that app made it to number eight, which most people would think would yield a decent amount of sales, but in the end, it it was a pretty pretty low number I, I don't know how much the app itself costs but i think it's just like in the three dollar range mm-hmm. you know under ten dollars uh so have to sell a decent number of units to make any significant amount of money and maybe that's where the problem is omni group's not struggling they're selling their apps in the app store and making making a decent living for a number of employees, but their average price is in the 80 plus dollar range. Yeah. They sell at a premium and even the Pixelmator guys who are relatively cheap for a good image editor, they still sell a lot at a good price too. And Sketch is another example where they seem to be doing quite well competing against Adobe in a fairly crowded space. They've got a $99 app, and I think they're doing reasonably well. 
Yeah, I think also the guy from Clear, they posted their app revenue for this that same day. And while it wasn't a, a big day for them, like they've had better and they've had worse, it was still similarly in that same range of profit. Well, yeah, and I think one of the things that just goes to show is that, you know, the, the top paid apps in the Mac App Store especially, but even somewhat in the iOS App Store, aren't really that important. It's the top grossing where all the money is being made. Uh, you know, maybe in 2009 or something like that, it was a lot different uh, with people just going and downloading apps like crazy, paying for, for things when there is, you know, less free competition. But, you know, hitting the top paid spot isn't really a, a goal to strive for if, you're, if your goal is to make a sustained living. Yeah, so do you think that the iOS user population as a whole now are less likely to buy an app than they were in 2009? Yeah, I think, I think they are. I think it depends on the app. You know, I'll use Sketch as an example again. You know, that app is something I would pay for and not really think twice about. You know, it helps me do my job. It, it has obvious value. Uh, but if it's just a little utility app or, you know, some, something that's fun and distracting for a short period of time, then I might think twice about it. Well, but I think the big difference is not, you know, I would probably pay for apps a lot too, but the big difference is there's a lot more people who aren't like us now, and they make up a bigger proportion, I think, than they used to. It used to be, you know, the early adopters, people were like, oh, this phone thing is cool. I'm going to go try some cool apps. And now it's like, so my flip phone uh, it stopped working, and, you know, I my son or daughter or something told me to get an iPhone. So that's why I have my iPhone. You know, I think those people are a lot less likely to buy apps and there's a lot more of them than kind of a few years ago. Yeah. And I wonder how much of the lack of willingness to pay is due to the absence of a, a way to trial an app before you buy, you know, there's no try before you buy. So Pretty much have to if you're going to buy an app, it, you got to take the risk that it it's going to be what you want. Short of using an in-app purchase to unlock features, which a lot of people do. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty common strategy. Uh, but then there, then there's that group of people that don't like in-app purchases, so mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you you kind of hit a wall with with that group. So I think. A lot of it depends on who your target audience is and the nature of the app. Um, An app's worth how much people are willing to pay, so figuring out what that is takes some experimentation. Uh, So it it seems like this keeps coming up, you know, month after month. uh, You know, you can't make it as an indie developer in the App Store. It's Apple's fault, you know, all all this stuff. And I I saw a tweet from Daniel Jalkett, basically saying the same thing he's like you know these stubborn developers who are making it will still won't admit that it's possible to make a living in the apps or it's not possible to make a living in the app store it's like you know some people are doing it it's it's definitely possible maybe maybe there is something you're doing wrong about marketing it's not just this artisanal like i build this awesome app and then boom everything will you know they will come after it's built just like in Whatever that old movie was. 
Help me out here. <laughs> Field of Dreams. Yeah, that one. Maybe it's not even that old, but. <laughs> In, you know, there's a common saying of, you know, you, you can't just build an app. You've got to build a business around mm-hmm. the app. And so, so it takes more than just writing some good code and putting it out there. Uh, also, you know, there's been a trend lately as well with the Mac App Store of exiting the App Store and selling direct. Just that because the App Store doesn't give you things like the ability for free trials or upgrade pricing and, and you know, a number of features there that, that you just can't do in the App Store. And I wonder how successful those developers are now that well, we, they're they're out. Well, I think there's an example in one blog post I read, I forget where it was, that they basically were making a lot more money out of the App Store than they were in it. I don't know. Did anyone else see that one? The the clear guys were doing more yeah. outside of the App Store. Okay, that was them. It, you've got things like Mac Heist and others that kind of help promote the apps and yeah, you know, once or twice a year. There's other marketing options that you just can't do in the app store. Yeah, but also I think it's it's more of a reflection of the popularity of iOS versus the Mac. Right. So if unlikely possibility that Apple releases a cross-platform tool like XUnit UXKit in June, and app developers are more have an easier time bringing their iOS apps to the Mac, would that cause a new gold rush, if you will, for Mac apps that just haven't been there because it's too much work to port these apps? So like Clash of Clans for the Mac, things like that. Well, I think it's also a matter of what you're in front of most of the time. I'm in front of my phone way more probably than I am my personal Mac. Because I'm at, usually I'm at work eight eight hours a day, and that's not my personal laptop. That's a, a work laptop. The the time that I'm actually in front of my own laptop and playing Clash of Clans or something would be a lot smaller than if I was on the bus just with my phone. So I think I think it's about the number of touches. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I like. I think if we do get like a UX kit or something along those lines, that you know you can write for the phone the the watch the tv and the mac i i think it's probably going to do more to kind of give a good experience for users who buy all of the apple stuff than it is to kind of create a big uh like renaissance in the app store or in the mac app store uh just because i don't i just like like sam saying i don't think there's lots of people who are in front of all those things all the time but you know it'll if you have one of those apps that you can use on all your Apple stuff, then that that probably looks really good and it'll help out your iOS business. And last year at WWDC, we saw a lot of features that help kind of bridge the gap between the Mac and the iOS devices. Thing, things like continuity and handoff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't really seen a whole lot of apps taking advantage of that, but a lot of the apps I use don't have a Mac equivalent. Yeah. Right. So maybe this this will be that maybe that's just one of the first steps in the big push towards the cross platform kit. I do think you know the best use case is in the productivity space and that's an area where people are definitely willing to spend money and that's 
part of the reason Omni Group is able to charge what they charge. Yeah, and there's also an ex- expectation that a productivity app is going to be more expensive than a uh, Whip app or a Fart app or something like that. Well, personally, I'm going to wait till Microsoft ports UX Kit to Windows desktops, <laughs> and then then I'll be in all of the app stores. Well, you also need to wait for them to implement Swift support, Sam, because they do not they have not announced that yet. But I've heard you've been doing some Swift lately. Is that true? That is true. Um, so I have this weird fascination with Reactive Cocoa. And I, I always think that, hey, this is going to be the way to go. And probably someday I'll think, why did I ever think that? But the the new Reactive Cocoa 3.0, which is in beta right now only, it mostly only got Swift changes. So the the creators have kind of said, hey, the writing is on the wall for the subjective c stuff. We're, we're going to be phasing it out. And so I was working on an app, and I was using... Reactive Cocoa 3, but with Objective-C, and I thought, this has not really changed that much. And so then I went digging on the internet and had one of those aha moments and found out that, oh, yeah, they're not going to be, there aren't any new changes for Objective-C. It's all Swift, and this is the direction that they're going. So, yeah, I actually spent yesterday and Friday doing a lot of porting of the code I'd already written to Swift, and yeah, it's got a lot of rough edges still. Not not just the code, but Swift in general. So has Reactive Cocoa? I, I always thought if they were going to go Swift, they would do a completely new library. Is it all still one combined library? Yeah, it's still one big library, uh, but there's kind of this. There's some bridging in between the two, but it's almost like two separate libraries built into one. Okay. Hmm. You still you still have Rack Signal. But now you have also, on the Swift side, you have a signal and a signal producer, which are hot and cold signals, respectively. Um, And that just means that as soon as you subscribe to a hot signal, the work is going to happen, but the cold signals, you have to kind of tell them to do something. I'm getting there. It's really hard for me to to kind of grok. Um, Like the, The theory behind it all is pretty clear to me, but actually trying to implement it in person. I've always been struggling with that. The The new one, the new Swift library, seems a little bit more clear. It's just that the documentation is not there. And so you're, you're digging through their unit tests on GitHub and starting to see, okay, oh, I can do this or I can do that. And there's a couple articles, blog articles that people have written, but there's not much. It's been an interesting trial. React Cocoa 3 is relatively new. I mean, it's been in beta for a while. They used it, used Carthage as kind of a test bed for the Swift version of React of Cocoa. Um, but in terms of being production ready, this is, what, a month or so? Well, even in January, they had a, a big uh, reorg or redo of the code. So it, it's, it is, yeah, it is still pretty fresh. Um, and a lot of the functionality that exists in the Objective-C side hasn't been replicated over yet. So they have a lot of uh, UI kit extensions for doing, uh, like, producing signals out of the the different views and controls, and those aren't there yet. So it's, it's definitely bleeding-edge territory right now. 
Man, you're going double bleeding edge with a Swift and the new version <laughs> of Reactive Coco. Well, it is right. Swift 1.2. Yeah. You're still in for a world of hurt, though. <laughs> yeah. I've got, right now I'm dealing with a compiler issue where I'm trying to uh, use a variable that's in a outer closure. Then I'm trying to use it from inside of an inner closure, and the Swift compiler just goes belly up. It says, I'm not compiling that. <laughs> Sounds fun. Yeah. And I find that I have to rewrite the same line several different times to try to get the syntax right. And the normally in like an Objective C, I would just backspace a little bit and then hit command sp- or control space and get my syntax completion again. That doesn't happen in Swift. Uh, the Xcode support is it's still it's there. It's not too bad, but it definitely has a, a ways to go. Definitely better in 6.3 than it was in 6.2, but you're right. It's, I think we'll see some big improvement in June. Yeah. And I, it's funny because I see errors, syntax errors or something, and they're there. I correct them. They still stay there. I hit Command-B, and then they go away. Now, is this a mix of Objective-C and, and Swift? It currently is, and it probably still will stay that way. Yeah, and the the bridging between the two is problematic sometimes. Like in the Swift code, I've got some methods that return generic types of a certain type. You know, it's a signal of a certain class, and the Objective C code just can't handle that. So I've had to write little wrappers that return back generic code. And I. I think that was one of the big changes with Reactive Cocoa 3 is it's now a lot more type safe than than the Objective C version. Yeah, in the Objective C version you have to do a lot of casting. It's definitely more concise. Uh they've done some stuff with some operator overloading that uh cuts down on some of the code too. Does it feel dirty at all or is it feel natural? Yeah, I'm I'm still wrapping my head around both, and these are really big topics. So, but yeah, it feels more natural, I'd say, than the Objective C version. Okay. And in my general opinion with learning a new language, especially with Swift, you give it a good four weeks where you're working with it every day before forming a strong opinion. It, it takes a while to kind of just for it to feel natural. Yeah, and switching back and forth in the same project can be a little problematic. Say I want to type semicolons in the Swift and then don't type semicolons in the Objective-C side. So I think it's about four weeks into it where, you know, your brain switches to the other way and you you start like, do I need semicolons? And (laughs) I've got to put spaces between my class and method names now. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, I definitely struggle going back at this point. Hmm. There are definitely things that I I find interesting, and I'm still trying to find my way around a lot of it. And I'm also trying to be a little bit more functional, so I'm wrestling with some of the concepts. Like, I have a model object. Do I need to make it totally immutable? If I make it immutable, then I have to have like these accessors that'll not necessarily mutate a value, but will return a whole new object with that changed property and is that wasteful 
I don't know. I'm getting used to it, and still, but definitely still trying to find my way. The next step is to integrate React Native from Facebook into your app. <laughs> <laughs> and then have it running on a Windows phone. Yeah, you yeah. don't want to rewrite that twice. I mean, come on. That's right. <laughs> so let's see. What else was in the news this week? Well, the, the new videos from the NS Conference 7, which happens to also be the last NS Conference, were posted up on Vimeo. And I actually, uh, I like the Vimeo app in a lot of ways. Uh, it's kind of awkward to use sometimes. But the one killer feature that I like is that you can actually download a video to watch later. Whereas, like, if you're trying to watch something intelligent on YouTube, which, you know, it's only like half a percent of the content, but you can't download those videos in the YouTube app for later. But I downloaded several of the, the NS Conference videos and uh, watched a couple of them today. I watched a couple today as well. Yeah, there's been lots of people uh, talking about various of the talks. I'm curious if there's any of them that stuck out to you guys is an interesting watch. I watched the one about continuous deployment uh, with the the developer who created Fastlane. Hmm. It's a, one of the Blitz talks, so it doesn't go into too much depth, but talked about his motivation for creating Fastlane to help deploy apps faster, automate more of the redundant steps to, to building, distributing, taking screenshots, things like that. And Fastlane something I've experimented with a little bit, but haven't really adopted, but I think I'm considering adopting it uh, on an existing project, if for no other reason than to take screenshots for all the different languages that we support. And that, that just hit 1.0. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm curious about that. I'm I'm definitely intrigued, uh, and it seems like it'd be a, you know, automating as much of that stuff as possible sounds awesome. So, like, where where does the automation end? Like, how much can you automate? It seems like there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, it's a pretty broad set of utilities that address a lot of the problems in, in small bits, uh, things like managing provisioning profiles is in one gem and uh, deploying to the app store is another gem. And the nice thing is it's kind of coherent bundle where you can create a lane which combines those steps into your process. So it's fairly flexible. You can configure it how you want. You can have multiple lanes for for building an app based on what you need. Yeah, the, the one video... I watched was from the NS Conference Seven was the uh, Black Pixel one about the the towel of management, and that was a decent talk. I I watched that as well. It's there's definitely a number of tops topics that go beyond just the code. It's talk about running a business or working with people. So this kind of fell into that category of human interaction and rather than computer interaction. Yeah. And uh, the other video I watched, I think, was actually from uh, the last year's conference. And that was the guy from Reveal, who also is part of the Melbourne Cocoa Heads. And 
apparently and they put out some really high quality videos on Vimeo as well with their Cocoa Heads presentations. And uh, he kind of went back, did a little behind the scenes with their secret sauce. And really for probably under, say, $500, you could have the same kind of uh, setup at your local Cocoa Heads group. We'll have to check that out for the Cincinnati Cocoa Heads group. Yeah, it would be nice to have some of that out there. I definitely like this trend of conferences releasing the session videos uh, for everyone. Yeah, it, uh, the cheap part of me says, hey, this is awesome. I never have to go to another conference. But <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not the whole reason to attend a conference. Yeah. So we kind of talked about one of our picks already. Do you guys have some other picks to talk about? One of the other tools that came out this week is Stencil, which is an Xcode plugin for, you know, as I understand it, file templates or a group of file templates. Mm-hmm. Sam, did you, did you play around with that? I did play around with it today, I think it was. And yeah, the, the setup is a little bit confusing at first. Um, it seems to want to push you towards like, hey, this is a great tool for making objects that inherit from other objects really quickly. It's like if you have a common base class that you want to inherit from, then this tool is really for you. But the the reality of it is that it can be used for kind of any template. And that's what I set it up for. I was I created a uh, a quick template for unit testing with Swift. And now all I have to do is right-click inside my project and say new quick spec. And it gives me everything pre-set up and it imports a few of the libraries that I use my project. So it's, like I said, it's a little bit confusing at at the start, but if you kind of follow through the the blog post that he has with it, uh, once you go through it the first time, it's not a problem. That actually sounds kind of cool. I could see like if you have a a library too, like maybe Reactive Cocoa that lends itself to certain uh design patterns or something you have some stencils to kind of support that and it seems like there's lots of different uses for this thing seems pretty cool throw out a little pick there um so newsletters that we like uh the the two that i've been enjoying uh i've been enjoying a long for a long time now the ios dev weekly which is probably just a mainstay and it's not really news to anybody out there but there's also another one that has hit and I think was he's probably like around issue number eight, nine, something like that. But it's really high quality stuff about learning how to code, do iOS, learning how to do iOS development. Uh, that is, it's iOS Tech Learning and Resources Weekly. So it's a little wordy in the title, but it's based on the same engine, the, the curated engine that the iOS Dev Weekly guy came up with. And so it's been uh, the issues I've gotten have been pretty high quality. And the guy is very passionate about learning iOS development. Along the same vein, Natasha the Robot has a newsletter dedicated to Swift topics, and that's also built on the curated platform. So check out her newsletter at natashatherobot.com. So we kind of ran over this week, guys, but I think there's a lot of good stuff. Do you want to tell us where we can find you on the internet? I'm at Alex Argo on Twitter. I'm at AJ Robinson on Twitter. 
and I'm at Sam Quarter on Twitter. Also, the podcast is at Shared Inst on Twitter, and you can find us on at SharedInstance.com. And we're also in iTunes, so you can subscribe there. Uh, definitely, we've had a, a rating lately, so uh, shout-outs to the Scrub Me guy. <laughs> Scrubs Me. Definitely thank you for the rating and the review. Uh, we'd love to have more of those. Just a couple if you guys more. Get a moment. <laughs> Just a couple more, and we'll we'll show up as a as a high, as a highly rated podcast. So we'd really appreciate it. Um, oh, it's just like the Mac App Store where you get three downloads and you're a highly rated podcast. Yeah, right now it says not enough to to show a rating. Right now, uh, yeah, definitely. So the more the merrier, guys. Thank you, and thanks again, Scrubs Me, for your review. And thank you, guys. I'll see you later. Thanks. See ya.